In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the first Sunday of Epiphany, and on the first Sunday of Epiphany, we celebrate the baptism of our Lord. It's uh, the preeminent Epiphany or manifestation of Christ. An Epiphany is when uh, we didn't know something and all of a sudden we do. It's uh, symbolized for us in the comic books by that light bulb that goes off over the character's head, right? Suddenly they have a realization, they understand something or know something that they hadn't known before. We also have in the uh, idea of epiphany manifestation, which is something being made known or something revealed. So the idea is that now we're able to perceive or we're able to understand something in a new way. It's been shown to us or it's been revealed to us. So in the season of epiphany, we're talking about the way that God has made himself known, that he's revealed himself to us and to the world. We started the season of the the church year with Advent, where we prepared for the first coming of Christ as a way of anticipating his second coming. We then celebrated his coming, his birth, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then once he's born now, this this epiphany, this manifestation, this making uh, known, which we have seen from the Garden of Eden through the prophets that we see in the Annunciation of Archangel Gabriel to Zephaniah and Elizabeth and to Mary, he makes himself known. He makes himself known uh, to the the shepherds. He makes himself known through the glory of the angels that sing. He makes himself known in his birth. And then he makes himself known uh, to the Magi, which is uh, where we start with the season of Epiphany, with the coming of these Gentiles that now know who the Savior of the nation of Israel is, this one that comes into the world. So the Magi is where we start with this celebration of Epiphany, and then we move into the baptism. You remember that the baptism is the place that we uh, say is the church Christ's public ministry begins. This is where in public he goes forth and he is proclaimed as Messiah. He is shown to be uh, God himself. Uh, This is reminded uh, for us uh, both in this lesson that we have from the Acts of the Apostles chapter 10, where Peter says from the time of his baptism he made himself known. And if you'll remember in Acts chapter 1, at the beginning of that book, uh, when they're replacing Judas, you remember that they say that it's not good that his seat be left vacant, but that his bishopric, as the King James says, his bishopric will be renewed, and uh, we will choose from among those who were with us since the time of Jesus' baptism. So you remember that there are a lot more than just the twelve in place at the time of Jesus' baptism, and that Peter identifies this as the point from which uh, they're going to select someone, because that is the, the beginning of Christ's ministry. We know that the baptism is this place where uh, God is revealed to us perfectly and uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it's not the first time. Uh, God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Garden of Eden. He reveals himself this way to Abraham uh, at the Oaks of Mamre. He reveals himself this way in Isaiah chapter 42, which is where we start our lessons today. In fact, in the very beginning of this passage this morning in in Isaiah 42, in verse 1, God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Behold my servant, who is speaking? 
God the Father, right? Behold my servant. God the Father is speaking. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. Who is the servant and the chosen? God the Son. This is the Christ, the Messiah, who has come forth. The Messiah is the chosen one. He is the, the servant. And then he says, My soul delights in him. I have put my spirit upon him. So it's not a spirit like we see in other places where a person has a spirit. This is my spirit that is put upon him. So this, of course, is the Holy Spirit. So here in the very first verse of Isaiah 42, we have the Father speaking about the Son and the bringing of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Trinity revealed for us at the time of the prophets. And so uh, they knew who it was that they were looking for. How do we know that this is uh, my chosen and my servant is uh, God himself? Because he is a light and he is my glory. And so uh, there is uh, no way for a human being to be God's light or his glory. This is the uncreated light of God. This is the very glory of God. So the glory of God, his uncreated light is his nature. It's his very person. Uh, right? He is sharing something of himself. So this servant, this chosen one, has God's very light and God's very glory. He has uh, the nature of God himself, which is what sets Christ uh, apart from all others, because he is God himself who has come and revealed himself. And how does he reveal himself? What does he do? Uh, he is God with us. He is Emmanuel. There were many uh, understandings of God that would say, yes, he is coming to bring justice. He is coming to establish himself. Uh, and indeed, we see in these lessons that uh, the, the gentleness and no, no, the nobility of Christ is, is set aside for us because we read that he's not going to cry aloud. He's not going to raise up his voice. He's not going to um, you know, be this uh, kind of this loud general or this politician or this political figure. He isn't going to come with this kind of uh, you know, manly authority or with uh, aggression. He's going to come with gentleness, with gentleness to establish justice like a kind and loving father. This is how uh, Christ comes to us. So first we're set up to understand that this Messiah is not going to be this general with the sword. He's not going to be this challenger who is coming to punish, but that he's coming to establish justice, which maybe to some of you sounds like a good thing. <laughs> I don't know uh, myself, because justice means that you're going to get what you deserve. Gulp, Right? <laughs> Justice is where we put on one side the balance of our actions, our thoughts, our attitude, right? And then the other side is what the result is, right? What God's response is going to be. That's the other side of the scale. So will it, his response be reward or will it be consequence, right? Either way, it's the result of our actions. And so he is coming intimately in relationship with us to respond to our response to him. It's a back and forth. He loves us, and then he waits to see what our response to him will be, and then his response back is based on our response. Do we respond back with love, and with kindness, and with gentleness? Or do we respond in another way? And so that's the justice scale that Christ brings. He comes and he is intimate with us. He is uh, familiar with us. It says that he comes to take us by the hand and to keep us. Taking us by the hand. Who gets taken by the hand? Right? Children, loved ones, the frail, 
those that are in need, we have to hold them by the hand in intimacy. This is not a God who's far off. This isn't a God who's distant and who from afar says you've done right and you've done wrong in judgment. This is not a God who sits on high separate from us. This is a God who's near us, a God who's with us day by day, who's walking with us, who promises that his responses and his life with us will always be hand in hand and that he is going to lead us. He's going to lead us day by day, moment by moment into his righteousness and that he will keep us keep us keeping is that beautiful husbandry isn't it to keep something is to care for it to keep something is to water it to keep something is to protect it he's going to keep us he's going to water and protect us and he's going to guide us and so now we know uh, that he is going to be revealed as father son and holy spirit and uh, now we come to the place where john and uh, jesus meet and we see john if you remember as a figure that seems to mark all of the boxes for this messiah that is promised he seems to have everything that we were looking for in the messiah his parents uh, zechariah and elizabeth seem to be uh, perfectly set as these prototypical parents from the old testament right they are uh, to us so um, identical to abraham and to sarah to um, isaac and rebecca to uh, hannah right to uh, manoah the father of samson they seem to be right out of those pages and the way that they respond to god and their holiness and their great age John himself reminds us of the Nazarites. He reminds us of these prophets of old that have been set aside. Indeed, he comes forth and he quotes from Isaiah. He seems to be this perfect picture of the prophet Isaiah and those who are like him. He's set aside. He doesn't have strong drink. He um, lives off of the land and uh, this kind of poor life uh, with the needy that are around uh, gathering at the river to meet God. And so he seems to have all of the boxes, all of the things that we think that we're going to receive from the Messiah, except he's not God. There's just that little thing. He's not God. Because the Messiah, again, as we saw in Isaiah, has the light and the glory of God. That is, he has the nature of God himself. And this is what John says. He says, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. He who is coming was before me. He who is coming is greater than me. He who is coming is divine. That's what John is telling us. And so when Jesus is baptized, again, we see the person of the Holy Trinity perfectly in place. Just as we saw at the Annunciation, where the Father speaks and the Holy Spirit descends upon the Virgin, and Christ is born into her womb. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present in the Virgin Mary. Here at baptism, again, we hear the Father's voice speaking. We have the Dove, uh, the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ, and then we have Christ himself. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perfectly revealed in baptism. And uh, what Christ does in baptism is um, a paradox to our baptism. It's the same, but it's radically different. Because while we have to be washed by the waters of baptism, Christ, when he descends, washes the water. While we have to be washed by the water, Christ washes the water. He, in his baptism, when he descends, makes all of the waters of all of creation holy. 
so that now when we go to be baptized, he has blessed all of the waters of creation, and now they are able to come and to wash us and to restore us. And John tells us a little bit about what this baptism is, what kind of a washing it is. Again, a strong gulp, because it's a little bit, if you'll notice, of a violent process. He compares it to fire and to the threshing floor. Not a pretty picture. What does he mean by the threshing floor? In the ancient world, when they would grow grain, wheat or barley or some kind of grain in the field, they would walk through the field and they would gather the heads of grain with their hands and they would have a small sickle, not the big ones like we're used to from the medieval period, right? These big long scythes, but small handheld sickles and they would hold the heads of grain and they would cut the heads off of the stalks of grain. And then they would take those heads of grain and put them into a sack or a bag that they would have slung over their shoulders. So they would walk through the fields and they would grab these heads and cut them with the sickle and put them into the bag until they had their bag full and then they would go to the threshing floor. And you remember that the threshing floor is a, a place where they would find it would be very flat and it would be very hard dirt, right? You don't want soft dirt, you want really hard dirt. Uh, so you want some kind of a clay surface that's been prepared. It needs to be shielded. It needs to have a roof, but it needs to have big doors that can open on either side so that the wind can blow through. And the threshing floor is very important. You remember that the Ark of the Covenant, when it's brought back from the Philistines, is placed twice upon threshing floors. Do you remember that? They placed the Ark of the Covenant on the threshing floors. This is a place where God says, I'm going to meet you. I'm going to be like one who gathers his grain. And he uses this analogy over and over through the scriptures about the gathering of the grain and the bringing in of the harvest. Christ uses that. The prophets use that. Because God is meeting us on the threshing floor. What happens to the heads of grain then that are put onto that hard floor? They're beaten. Isn't that wonderful? So this is the comparison of what baptism is. We get cut from the stock, we get laid on the hard ground, and then a cudgel or a sledge is hit onto the grain over and over again until the shell, right, the chaff, that outer covering, is removed from that inner seed, that little bit of grain, those tiny bits of seed or grain that are in the head of the, the stock. And so what the Lord is saying is that I'm going to remove that inner core of you, that important part of you, your soul, your spirit, and I'm going to remove it from that outer shell that you've covered yourself with. Now I'll leave you all to think about the shell yourselves. But basically the shell is anything that's going to separate us from God or from each other. Do you see where I'm getting? Anything where we say, well, I'm this kind of a person and they're that kind of a person? Right? We... You know what I'm talking about? I'm this way and you're that way. I do this and you do that. We use it for all kinds of things. I'm this kind of a person, they're that kind of a person. We use it to judge others. We use it to separate ourselves from others. We use it to condemn others. We use it to excuse ourselves or to make ourselves out to be important so that we don't require, what? The saving grace of God. So anything that we do that separates ourselves, that builds ourselves up to say, I'm great and they're not, we're not allowing the Lord to heal and to restore. And that will always lead to violence. 
The violence of the threshing floor will remove us eventually from that chaff, anything that we would separate ourselves from God or from another, until finally it's left broken on the ground. And then what does the farmer do? He takes a big tonged fork and he puts it into now this big mess that's on the floor of all this grain and the little bits of chaff, and he throws it up into the ground. They would do this in the evening when there would be a good breeze that would blow through the, the threshing floor. And this is why they would need big open doors or just a covering, because the breeze would, would blow that chaff away. The seed would fall straight down because of its weight, but the chaff would blow away. And the more that was lifted up into the wind and lifted up into the wind, the more the seed falls down and the chaff is blown away. That's the excess that will be what? Burned. Destroyed. And of course that burning that we see in the fire is always that image of the Holy Spirit. Always our understanding of the Holy Spirit that John starts with. We've used the analogy of electricity, right? That if we use it the right way, we have blessing. If we don't, we have damage or we have danger. Fire is the same way. The people of the ancient world would be so familiar with metal being put into the furnace of the blacksmith, right? Every village would have one where the blacksmith was working with, whether it be copper or bronze or silver or gold. And they would know that when that metal was put into the fire, it would receive the heat of the fire. And when you look into the furnace, eventually you can't tell the difference between the fire and the metal because they become one. And the hotter the fire, the brighter it burns, the less you can see the shape of the metal. So that you can't say, here is fire and here is metal, but they become one. But in that process of the furnace, the dross and the dirt, that which is decayed in the metal, comes to the surface and it forms a, a kind of a black shell on the metal that has to then be washed in water or it has to be ground away. So that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Lord would fill us. He would become one with us as fire is with metal. But all that is extra, all that has been put onto us as armor to separate ourselves from God and from one another will be destroyed. An exciting process. How do we participate in that? St. Peter says that uh, that all those that are found acceptable to God, regardless of their shell, regardless of their ethnicity, will be found acceptable to God. So this is Acts chapter 10, and we really need a little bit of backstory, I think, to understand what's going on, because this little passage we have here in Acts chapter 10 is right in the middle of that larger story that you may remember. You remember that uh, St. Peter is in Joppa at the Tanner's house, and he's on the roof, and he's been praying, and while praying, he has this vision that the Lord gives him of this picnic cloth, right, that's laid down, and that has all the animals of the earth, and the Lord says, rise up, Peter, and eat. And Peter says, I don't eat that stuff. That's not clean. And the Lord does it again until Peter suddenly understands, oh, he's made all things clean. And he says, rise up and eat. And at that moment, uh, the door receives a knock and there's a servant coming from Cornelius. And Cornelius is sent for Peter to come. Now, in this moment, we would expect Peter to say, no way. Right? There's a... There's a husk between St. Peter and Cornelius. There's a shell, right? Peter is 
one of the good guys and Cornelius is one of the bad guys, right? Number one, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's not clean. He can't go into his house. He couldn't walk into an unclean person's house because in in the ancient world, when you come into somebody's house, they have to offer you food. He couldn't eat the food, so he would not be a good guest. He couldn't go into a Gentile's house. Furthermore, Cornelius is an enemy of Israel. He is an invading army of, of Rome, right, who has come and who has occupied Israel and Judah and is more and more treating them with with malice as enemies and it's a very short time before the temple is finally destroyed and the Jews cast out of Jerusalem and those that were looking at the political picture could see the writing on the wall they knew this was coming so Peter had a really good reason not to answer that knock at the door and to go into Cornelius's house but the Lord had given him that vision so he goes anyways And when he goes and he hears what Cornelius has to say and he begins to preach, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit reveals to Peter, Oh my, there's nothing that separates me from you. There is no husk. It's been removed. And now I know that those who, what does he say? Fear God and do what is right are acceptable. This is exactly what we heard at the beginning of the story. Cornelius was giving alms to the poor, and he was praying. He was giving alms to the poor, and he was praying. Which is exactly what Peter had been doing when he received the knock at the door. Which is exactly, if you remember in the gospel, what Jesus was doing in the waters of baptism when he received the Holy Spirit. Are you seeing... Any kind of a pattern here? Jesus was praying. Peter was praying. Cornelius was praying. And every time what happened? The Holy Spirit showed up and said, there's only the good of righteousness and the holding tight to God that is needed to be found acceptable to him. Well, that's great news, except we can't do what's acceptable. We can't do what's right, in case you hadn't noticed. We try and we fail. We try and we fail. We can't do it, except through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we allow the Holy Spirit to come into us, when we acknowledge that we are not enough, and we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit in prayer, when we allow him to come into our hearts and our minds, then we will be transformed. And then we will be able to do everything that he has given us to do. We hunger for his power. We hunger for his presence. We hunger to do what is right. And the only way to rise up and eat is to do it through the obedience to the power of the Holy Spirit. He would take us by the hand. He would take us by the hand this day and he would hold us and he would keep us. May the Lord take us by the hand.